Hey everyone, welcome to Wire Talks, the Wire podcast where we discuss all things crypto. So whether you're a veteran or a crypto noob, we're all learning together. This is your host, Thomas Correa. I work here at Wire. I'm joined by my co-host, Louis Abood, head of research at Wire Capital. Thank you for joining, Louis. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Today, I'm also joined by Evan Shapiro, co-founder and CEO of Coda Protocol. Evan, thanks for joining the show. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for making your way out here from your Oakland office, I believe, right? Uh, not, not exactly. Okay. Uh, we're, well, we have a bunch of employees in Oakland, but we're actually based in San Francisco. Ah. Just in downtown. Just in downtown. Yeah. Very good. How, how big is the team right now? Oh, we're, we're up to 19 now. Growing yeah. very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And is that uh, still all developers or what does that look like? <laughs> it's a little more uh, diverse now. We're at uh, yeah. 15 um, engineers and maybe only 14 engineers and the rest are, uh, you know, people related to operations and product and the other parts of the business. Cool. Oh, awesome. I'd love to hear a little bit more about you, how you got into crypto and what was your background leading up to Coda? Totally. Um, let's see. So I've, I've been definitely watching crypto for a long time. Like I thought the technology was amazing. And, uh, you know, I remember when Bitcoin, you know, first spiked a little bit of <laughs> past just a few cents and then watching it and being kind of amazed at, um, that this was actually something that could exist and that the technology behind it was real and made sense. It wasn't until like, I guess, 2016, 2017, that I started really digging into it um, in terms of my personal work and uh, really thinking about how I could get involved in it. The real start was in 2017, me and um, my, my co-founder, Isaac Meckler, were, he, he had just come to the Bay Area to do a PhD in cryptography. And we were spending a fair bit of time talking about all the approaches out there for cryptocurrency. Uh, the different trade-offs of them, and kind of just like marveling at like the amount of hype there was versus like where we saw the technology was. Like um, you may remember like the uh, Bitcoin kind of um, blockchain size war at the time, changing the block size from like one to two megabytes was like this huge thing that people were arguing over. And I just remember being kind of astounded by that and us thinking through the um, different technical trade-offs of these different approaches. And it was around early 2017 that we were also starting to think about how could we actually have an impact in the space? And how could we use some of our knowledge to kind of benefit what we saw as like a really exciting technology? And it was around then that we started thinking through this like verification problem and blockchain size problem. Mm -hmm. And your co-founder, uh, he was doing his uh, PhD, you know, when you guys got together, what were you working on when he was in PhD school? Yeah, uh, I had uh, just finished like the year before a uh, master's in robotics at okay. uh, CMU, Carnegie Mellon. And I was uh, set to do a uh, PhD in robotics, but I decided I uh, didn't want to do that. So I was kind of spending that time in San Francisco, um, living in a friend's fair room and like thinking through what kind of uh, side projects or things I wanted to do next. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, this, of course, was one of the most compelling and the one I ended up doing. What year was this? I think like early 2017 was when this all kind of started coming together. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm just thinking out loud like... Getting a PhD in cryptography was not like a sexy thing at all, you know, before Bitcoin. And then suddenly these people, you know, they they stumbled into basically like the most lucrative opportunity yeah, it's, <laughs> or it's, space to get into just unbeknownst to them, maybe. I don't know. Maybe it, some it's of them were fascinating. Um, I mean, you know, even like crypto has kind of taken the word crypto and uh, like used it for cryptocurrency now. I mean, when I think about like Isaac, like he was always into math and thinking through like, 
complicated research problems and really being at the cutting edge of like a, a few different research areas in math before thinking of cryptography as something he really wanted to dig further into. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really like a happy coincidence that uh, we happened to be so interested in the technology at the same time as he was, you know, learning so much about um, cryptography. Mm-hmm. And is there any sort of overlap between robotics and what got you interested in, in cryptocurrency? Um, maybe not robotics, but definitely other parts of my background for sure. Like um, I've always been really interested in kind of systems architecture and thinking through distributed systems and the way that different parts of a program can communicate and the way that you can set up like um, different constraints and incentives and just thinking through things at both the micro and the macro level. And I think that's like lended really well to thinking through protocol design and thinking through um, how to achieve desired features with the simplest possible uh, mechanisms, which I think is uh, my approach to looking at these things. Cool. I'd love to dive into Coda, the problem that it's trying to solve and you know the solution that is Coda. The problem as I see it is to verify cryptocurrencies these days, you need very powerful computer, some sort of very tremendous internet connection and lots and lots of hard drive space, right? The resources required to actually run nodes are just uh, just proved to be a very high entry barrier for entry at the moment. So that's how I see the problem right now. What what would you add to the current state of blockchain bloat uh, today? Yeah, I mean, like the problem is I think that at some point in your stack, if you want to reach a user, there's someone has to be running a node. If it's the end user running the node, that's like a huge barrier to entry. It's going to make it really hard for people to actually adopt cryptocurrency. And as nodes get bigger, they're even harder and harder to run. And they end up being further back in the stack. They go from users to developers to huge institutions. And as that happens, you lose the decentralization. And you also kind of take away some of the advantages of cryptocurrency for the user. So it's really about nodes being impossible to run and that leading to nodes living farther and farther back in the in like this uh i guess like kind of user developer like institution um continuum mm-hmm. and then you add things like proof of stake into the equation and you know proof of stake has this reputation of very much like it seems like capitalism all over again right the yeah. people with the most financial motives get to delegate the system so yeah you add that complexity to it. And it very much seems like blockchains are not solving the problem that they sought out to solve. How does Coda tackle this problem head on? Uh, I mean, I guess like just to mention the proof of stake thing briefly, um, we, we tackle that part of the side too while doing proof of stake, which I think is interesting to talk about as well. Talking about the um, blockchain bloat problem, what Coda does is it takes the blockchain and it makes it really, really tiny. So you can verify the current state of the world with far, far less data, with the same amount of security as you'd get in like, um, you know, another cryptocurrency. In particular, like with a little with a little proof the size of like a few tweets, you can verify the whole blockchain, which makes it possible to use the cryptocurrency directly as an end user. So it's a huge improvement for anyone who wants to participate in the security of a cryptocurrency. So I think uh, before we get into the nitty gritty of, of how it all works, uh, it's probably worth talking about what some of the practical outcomes have been of blockchain bloat. You know, with Ethereum, um, you know, maybe uh, you can tell us a bit about, you know, how nodes are run on Ethereum now, what services people might use and why those services have become popular. Um, sure. I, I mean, I the, the thing that I think about, and this is like a little different, but I think it gets to the same thing is if you're a developer right now trying to build an application on top of a cryptocurrency, at some point you need your users to use that cryptocurrency. So there's a variety of ways people have kind of tackle this problem of connecting their users to the cryptocurrency. 
there's maybe like um, the most decentralized possible approach, which is like the Augur approach. You um, have all your users download a full node. And once they've downloaded the node, the um, application connects locally to that node and fully verifies all the transactions, giving your users the maximum level of decentralization, but also requiring that they uh, know how to run an Ethereum node, which is depending on what you're doing, like, you know, anywhere between uh, gigabytes to hundreds of gigabytes and requires you to leave your computer on all the time, constantly downloading nodes. And um, it's kind of a scary process if you're like doing something financial where you have to have like your computer always running, your internet can never go down. It's uh, kind of a buried usability. Whereas on the other end, most applications today, you just kind of download an app where you go to a website, you click a link and you're starting to use it. And there's definitely approaches on that side of things too. You have like sort of like uh, institutions like Coinbase, which um, people, you know, trust to custody their funds. And you have other applications on websites that, you know, you're not using the cryptocurrency directly or using it through a developer service or through another third party, maybe like MetaMask, but you are getting access to the cryptocurrency. Still with some usability issues, but with some trade-offs as well. Mm. And I guess uh, one other kind of place where that is uh, demonstrated is with like SPV wallets on Bitcoin. Uh Uh, Maybe you can describe kind of what they are, why they exist and the problem and sort of trade-off that they create. Yeah. I mean, so this is just an SPV wallet is basically just sort of instead of downloading the entire transaction history, you download just a subset needed to verify that um, you're looking at the state with the most proof of work. So this means you haven't really verified the whole blockchain, but you have verified a subset that maybe is sufficient enough to convince yourself that your account state is actually correct. Now, there's a few trade-offs you're making when you do this. One is that to know the state of account, you still have to download all the transactions relevant to that account or see what someone else is saying about that account and trust them. And the other one is that you are trusting that the current consensus state is valid, which is, you know, it's it's not just making the assumption that there's not a 51% attack like um, that is long. It's making the assumption that you're not currently looking at a 51% attack that could arbitrarily change the values of accounts. And, and this is obviously, you know, really depends on the protocol you're looking at, you know, an account-based model versus like a, you know, a, you know, UTXO or like transaction-based model. But no matter what, if you're doing SPV, you're not looking at the full state. You're not verifying the full state was computed correctly. So there's opportunity there for fraud and for uh, deceit to happen. So I'm trying to understand what exactly Coda is. Is it the piece of technology that tries to solve blockchain bloat? Is it some sort of protocol to create your own cryptocurrency or is it just a cryptocurrency? What exactly is uh, Coda there? Sure. Uh, Coda is a new cryptocurrency. It's being developed by like our company, O1 Labs. Uh, we're incubating it for the purposes of releasing it to like the wider world in a way that's fully decentralized and brings on board a huge and, wide and uh, global community. Uh, there's a side project you guys, or a tangential project you guys are working on as well. I think it's called Snarky? Snarky, yeah. Yes. What's, what's that all about? Snarky is um, one of the um, tools we use to make Coda possible. It's a um, way of writing ZK Snarks and a way of writing ZK Snark programs that, well, look like code, look like computer programs. Um, when you're building a ZK Snark proof, which we use to um, create a proof of the current state of Coda, you have to you know, actually write down the different constraints and inputs and outputs that that program has. And in the past, the main way of doing that has been this program called LibSnark, uh, which was you know, very successful in making these tools accessible and you know, usable outside of a research community. But we've been working on making this tool snarky, which lets you not only write snarks in a way that's accessible, but lets you write snarks in a way that is basically equivalent to writing normal code. So people are very familiar with like the way that you, you know, write bug-free code or verify the correctness of a function 
or otherwise developed for Snarky, we we uh, we hope more than uh, other uh, tools out there. Got it. So you guys will will you guys be developing other tools that will enable people that want to build on your technology to basically uh, basically access it very easily. Like this is to engage the developer community yeah. so that it's very easy to use uh, the technology that Code is built in. Correct. Totally. I mean, yeah. I think part of our mission is to take all this novel cryptography which is coming out and bring it to the rest of the world. So we see Snarky as not just part of Coda, but something that we want to share with the community. We want to bring the community in to get involved in to make ZK Snarks easier to write proofs for. And I should mention as well, we'll be, uh, we're looking now into the logistics of making a, a hackathon hmm. for increasing the performance of uh, ZK Snark proving, which is another kind of side of the equation that we think could be a lot better and want to involve more people in. We should definitely talk offline about the hackathon. Yeah, that's <laughs> something I work on here at Wire quite often. Um, let's back up just a second. What exactly is ZK Snarks? This is a technology that's typically been associated with privacy. Mm-hmm. How has it been fitted into a scalability solution? Yeah. Um, so maybe it's worth taking like just like a moment to explain what ZK Snarks really do because it, it's amazing how powerful they are. So it's 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 uh, good to explain like the generality and just. <laughs> kind of how cool they are. So what, what ZK Snarks let you do is take, I'll phrase it in like a more computer science language, um, take a program and prove that if you ran that program with a set of inputs, you know, the program would um, say that those inputs returned true or they validated with respect to the program. This is of course just one way of framing it, but I, I like it because it kind of gets at how general they are. And it is very cool because once I make a ZK snark for something, like it can be a program that took me a million years to run and I give it to you, you can verify it in constant time. You can verify it instantly. Uh, so in the context of um, Coda, you can incrementally create this proof of the correctness of the current protocol state. And then you can pass it around and everyone can look at that proof and say, oh, of course, that is the state of Coda. And it's exactly the same as if I had downloaded the whole blockchain and run it. And, and to compare that to like Zcash, you can have a transaction which the inputs are hidden. You don't have to show everyone all the inputs to these ZK snarks. And you can still kind of, uh, they can believe that something about those inputs is true. So who actually invented ZK snarks? Was it the Zcash team? Um, they, they were definitely instrumental in popularizing it and building a lot of the tooling, but uh, they, they've been around a long time. Um, there, there's uh, initially just zero knowledge proofs, which is just um, ways of making statements that hide some of the information. And the real advancements recently have been in, um, or one of the main advancements has been in making succinct zero-knowledge proofs. So proofs that are, you know, either very small or constant size. And this is where you get ZK Snarks and ZK Starks from. Mm-hmm. And who really made that jump of, you know, identifying this as a privacy uh, technology and then that saying this could also work as a scalability solution? Was that was that an O1 Labs uh, baby or was that designed by someone else? I mean, we, we uh, it was definitely independently invented a few times. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we came across it because we were, Izzy was aware of the technology and we were kind of like, you know, thinking through like, hey, like, h- how do we give everyone the benefit of checking all these computation without them actually having to check it? It was a natural connection once, aha, Izzy was studying ZK Snarks at the time. But there, there's been a few people who have published related things to um, this kind of realization. I see. Actually writing the proofs for ZK Snarks, that's computationally intensive, correct? 
Uh, whereas verifying those proofs is is not computationally intensive. It can be run on a browser or yes. a phone. How does your protocol actually produce the proofs, which are computationally in- intensive? Does does that rely on some sort of like master node, or how does that work exactly? So let's see. So there's really without delving too deeply into the protocol, which of course I'm happy to do. Uh, <laughs> um, really, what's happening is you have like a ZK snark, let's say that there's, we assume there already is a ZK snark for like some state of the protocol. So, you know, it's uh, Thursday at uh, 10 p.m. and the protocol is in state X and there's a proof for it. Now, let's say it's uh, Thursday at 10.01 and it's time to produce the proof for the updated state with new transactions applied. What the coder network does is it coordinates the taking the existing ZK snark proof and applying the update to it to create a new ZK snark proof. So the new ZK snark proof doesn't say there was a you know transaction since the beginning of time that resulted in the current protocol state. It says something basically equivalent. If I took the previous protocol state proof and I apply this update, I'll get the new protocol state proof. So it's a proof of a proof of a proof of a proof. Yes, uh, <laughs> it's it's a uh, we always try to think of fun metaphors for it, like a you know a picture of a picture of a picture of a picture. Yeah, or you know things like that. It's it's fun. Is there an inherent security trade off when you're using these recursive proofs? Um, not like particularly, you definitely have to be like careful. You've written out the rules of the protocol correctly, but that's still the same as any protocol. Uh, once the rules of the protocol are written out properly, um, you can be sure that they're being followed. So the, the, uh, client or node, do they store, so they store the current state plus a proof that the current state is valid as according to the previous proofs, right? Yes. Is there like a role or purpose in the Kodo protocol to store the whole transaction history? There's not an explicit role, like we don't incentivize it anywhere, mm-hmm. but um, we're pretty sure people are going to do it. And to make it accessible, we're probably going to run one of these, uh, you know, uh, maybe uh, historian nodes ourselves and uh, give people access to, to the data. Interesting. And if they did want to do it, you know, are the transactions of a particularly large size when you... Is it like, uh, will they be similar in size, like a Bitcoin transaction or does the implementation of any other kind of ZK snarks or anything make these transactions larger? It's like the same size. Yeah. Um, okay. Our, our public keys are a bit longer to get a little technical, but uh, yeah. it's it's the same basically. Okay. I noticed that you guys use OCaml and functional programming. Yeah. Um, why do you use functional programming versus object-oriented programming? So let, let's see. I think like, you know, the simplest answer is Isaac and I are huge fans of functional programming and we think it's really fun to program in. And uh, other people at the company also think it's fun to program in. It's been uh, like a fun way to, you know, develop code. Um, But I I think like there's really serious advantages to using it as well, Um, particularly if you're worried about the safety and security of a large program. You want to be able to make formal guarantees about what different parts of the code is doing. And that's far easier to use with one of the main benefits of functional programming, which is a powerful type system and very few or no side effects. Um, mm-hmm. Once you can look at a function and say, this is all the function is doing, or once you can pass in very custom types, you can have very strong guarantees about knowing that you implemented things correctly. I also noticed Isaac uh, worked at Jane Street and they're, uh, we, we're both from finance, Louis and uh, myself, and uh, Jane Street is known for notorious for using functional programming so he probably picked that up uh, there correct uh he picked it up before i think and oh, okay. uh, that was one of the reasons gene street was so interesting but uh mm. it definitely helped in like you know us learning more about the ecosystem and uh 
using OCaml as uh, our language of choice. What's your developer community look like then? Does OCaml restrict you know, your top of the funnel for attracting developer uh, talent to build on top of Coda? So, so it's kind of funny. Um, we definitely have had like um, fewer people wanting to get involved in like the actual protocol development directly. But when we do find people, they're like super motivated, super interested. It's like a super fun project for them. So probably a, like a smaller set, but the people we do find are like uh, awesome and super interested. And I like, I think it makes sense. There's so few OCaml projects out there and we're like a fun one to engage with. Yeah. Any other technical questions, Louis? I guess I'm um, just thinking about, you know, how tra- like scalability and how transactions get processed on the network. You know, uh, obviously reducing blockchain bloat makes running a node lighter. In terms of like transaction throughput, how does it change the dynamics there? Like, are you putting more transactions in each block um, and not sort of worrying about how big each block is? What does that kind of look like? Yeah, it's basically exactly that. Um once you've removed kind of the externality of keeping every transaction around forever, you, you can just increase the uh, number of transactions per block. I should mention, of course, this is still kind of um, restricted by bandwidth. Yeah. Um, if you want everyone to kind of be aware of what the whole network is doing, you have to tell them all. And then you have to say, hey, you know, if I have Comcast, my upload speed is limited to, you know, maybe one megabit per second. And that um, restricts the um, maximum block size we can allow if we want to keep the network decentralized. And that translates into in the thousands of transactions per second. Yeah, because I mean, one of the things that I've noticed people who are smarter than me say is that if you think about the the capacity constraints on scalability, really bandwidth in a lot of cases is at the top, right? And the the issues that Coda deals with directly, like which would be CPU and hard drive, is kind of lowered down. How how do you kind of think about that? You know, if if the biggest capacity constraint is bandwidth you know are there ways that you can utilize this technology to solve those kind of problems as well yeah um the biggest one is sort of separating the system into maybe two classes of participants one being like consensus nodes and the other one being just regular participants in the network and if you ask like oh what does a consensus need no need it needs the full state it needs to know all the updates it needs to be able to um hold on to them so that the data is available for future modification so that's something that we um, require in our protocol. But then you can say, oh, for participant nodes, did they have to store all the entire account state? And the answer is really no. Like if you only care about maybe your wallet or a subset of wallets, you only have to, you know, store that A, like um, only only store those and B, you only have to store them when you need them. So that can be something that's dynamically requested from consensus nodes as uh, as needed. So you really only need to store the proof in like a few kilobytes for the Merkle paths. Right. And you mentioned uh, before that you're going to use a proof of stake for consensus. Kind of what's your thinking around proof of work versus proof of stake? Oh, gosh. So there's <laughs> there's so many trade-offs in like this whole design space. I think that one... So so I'll just kind of start just like with that kind of like, uh, you know, dichotomy proof of stake, proof of work. I, I think that for us, thinking the proof of work, we really feel like that's giving control to like not people who, you know, really have a stake in the cryptocurrency, but own mining equipment. And that kind of creates this arms race to create ASICs. And it creates mm-hmm. this sort sort of um, this, this equilibrium where you have all these miners trying to compete for hash power. And you also have miners on other cryptocurrencies making decisions whether to switch to Coda or not. And if you're in that situation, 
it's kind of a little scary because if you're not the number one cryptocurrency, then you know you should be worried. I think of 51% attacks of people switching off of their primary cryptocurrency to attack yours temporarily, and and attacks of that nature, where you can kind of mitigate all those with using proof of stake. Mm. Now, I, I don't think that fully answers the state of the ecosystem because proof of stake isn't one thing; it's a billion things. Like you have delegated proof of stake, you you have. Uh, you know, Ethereum style proof of, of proof of stake. You have so many different variants of this that it's not sufficient to just kind of divide up the space. Um, we're going with something relatively simple and uh, we think fair for our proof of stake that is uh, decentralized and engaging and um, sort of uh, has a lot of the advantages of different approaches. Um, but there's just a huge design space of possibilities. So are you, are you picking off the piggybacking off something else like Tendermint or is it kind of your own design? Uh, it's something we've uh, actually, we've a lot of our work is inspired by what the Cardano and Ouroboros uh, team has just put out. Um, in particular, like we think the work they've done with uh, Prowse and Genesis, um, they've done both a great job of um, being fairly rigorous and academic about showing that it works and also making very minimal assumptions, uh, which is something that's important to us. Uh, relying purely on like economic incentives or locking up funds and and things like that is a little scarier to me than relying on just pure technical like assume fifty one percent of money is honest sort of things that are um, make less assumptions around the network. And this is a quite a multifaceted question, but um, you know when you think about your kind of position in the world in the industry, you know you're you're obviously implementing this solution to solve a particular problem that is also faced by uh, other networks, Ethereum, for example, you know, how do you think about kind of working to improve current protocols versus doing your own thing? Can you effectively work on building solutions for chains like Ethereum? Uh, is that practical? I mean, the first thing we want to do is is realize a cryptocurrency and a community that makes that <laughs> and brings cryptocurrency to a wider audience and brings cryptocurrency to a, a global audience in a way that keeps it decentralized. I, I, as such, like uh, I think our efforts are best focused around like building Coda and uh, really developing it the best we can be and facing whatever challenges come up there. Um, in the long term, I think that it'll definitely be a collaborative ecosystem and there's opportunities there. But at the moment, like just the straight path forward is building uh, Coda. Do you get any love from the Bitcoin community? Because you would assume they would be all over this, right? But yeah. then again, you're creating altcoin, so you're the devil. <laughs> <laughs> that's the, that's the trade-off. Um, yeah. I, I think that like um, there's a lot to be said for a, a cryptocurrency that you know um, you can use with full security from your phone, and also like um, the way a proof of stake works is um, it, I think it will make a fairly good proof of store of uh, store of value as well. Or, or to repeat that, like. Um, the way that our proof of stake is designed, it makes a fairly good store of value as well. And I, I, I think that, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to as we get our technology out there, having um, collaborations and involvement with, with those people. Uh, congrats on the launch of your test network. What can you do on testnet right now? And what were you trying to demonstrate to your community? Yeah, I mean, the two main things you can do right now is um, things are still, uh, it's a private testnet. We're, we're still keeping things in alpha while um, we're finishing a proof of stake, but you can apply to be part of that. And it also is an opportunity for us to, you know, show that Coda works on a web browser, which is something that we're super excited about. And, uh, you know, it was it was funny. We were like, well, we'd have to implement this in JavaScript. And Izzy was like, interesting. I would, And then he like, you know, came back the next weekend saying, I did it. I implemented it in JavaScript. And uh, it was a great opportunity to kind of put that out there and, and yeah. 
When I checked out the GitHub for uh, Testnet, I noticed that you still need bulky hardware to to run on Testnet. I think you're asking for 12 gigabytes of RAM and four cores. That's for, I think you answered this already, it's those historian nodes that need to actually prove. So, yeah, not, not quite. So right now, everyone in our network is... Um, if, if you're joining the network, we expect everyone to be like part of consensus to be a prover node. And if you're a prover node, you have to have like a fairly good CPU to produce these snark proofs. And as well as um, like, basically it's all for snark proofs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned, we're doing uh, some sort of hackathon to uh, try to improve that situation. We think there's a lot of uh, low hanging fruit there. And so how does the smart contracting capability or scripting fit into your vision for the protocol? I did notice there was some talk about making it Turing complete in the white paper. Yeah. Yeah. So the way that the um, protocol is set up is the database transitions, like the uh, updates you can apply to the database can be Turing complete. You can do any computation you want in there. At the moment, we're mostly focusing on payments, and that's what we will probably uh, end up shipping with, with you know maybe a few additional small things like multi-sig perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, in the long term, we will be working to add general purpose like Turing complete functionality. A- and I think there's a, some cool possibilities there, like kind of leveraging snarks where kind of anyone can extend the protocol in any way they want and add their own smart contract language or their own privacy language or whatever they would like to add to the protocol. How do you think about kind of, you know, you're primarily, at least to begin with, building a payments network. Uh, how much time do you think about kind of bringing that technology to market, finding commercial use cases, adoption, just putting like the developer interest and in that to one side? Yeah, um, a, a fair bit of time. Uh, I, I think that's something that's really important to us is getting this technology beyond cryptocurrency enthusiasts to like the wider market and working with cryptocurrency enthusiasts to make that possible. And the the way that we're sort of thinking through that right now is we're really big fans of like toys and games and like ways of coordinating large groups of people. And what I would be excited to do is build a developer ecosystem where anyone can very easily just write against our API and build a whole application and then be able to, you know, re- reach, you know, anyone clicking a link on Reddit or Hacker News or whatever and bring them into their application. Interesting that. And uh, you mentioned before, like you've tried to design the, I think, did you say it to be a good store of value, right? Uh, I assume you were referring to like the inflation properties or sort of the economics of the network. Yeah. That's kind of what's your, what's your thinking there? You know, how big is the kind of store of value pitch in the value proposition for Coda coins? I, I think it kind of came up naturally um, because we were thinking, oh, like, you know, new currency is being created. What happens to that. And the way that our current proof of stake is designed is that anyone can stake at any time and there's no lockup. You can just stake. And if we do have a lockup, it'll be very minimal. And, and that means that if you hold Coda and you can easily stake that if you have, let's say a percent, then you will get a percent of future Coinbase's and you will retain around a percent of the total protocol. Um, so you have to think about it in terms of like percents instead of like absolute numbers. Mm. But if you think about it that way, if you stake, then you you kind of hold your percentage, which is which is kind of cool. Yeah. Price stability is also a problem that you'll need to tackle if you hope to be a payments network, right? People don't want to spend Bitcoin that could be appreciating in value. How will you design the 
crypto economics and the supply side economics, whatever economics, to encourage people to actually use this as a medium exchange rather than uh, you know just holding it till it goes to a million bucks or something. I mean, there's things we need to do around like liquidity and uh, making sure that we've put in place an ecosystem of a large set of people that are interested in like using this in an interesting way. But but I think like there's there's maybe a couple things we're thinking around that space. I think it's extremely important. One is that kind of keeping the apps we build around cryptocurrency specific applications where you get an advantage to using cryptocurrency over like fiat or traditional payment mechanisms. I think if we do that, then uh, stability is slightly less important. Although, though of course, I think it's still a, a huge deal. And the second thing is, I think that uh, we see stablecoins sort of as a, a layer two property of Coda that we want to either build or work with someone to build or see someone build. That's kind of our thinking about how to structure that whole uh, <laughs> ecosystem at the moment. Mm -hmm. What will the first block look like? Who do you hope will be, you know, nodes when you actually go to mainnet? You know, how do you go? How do you think about distributing Coda widely? That's something we're still thinking through right now, and maybe I can share kind of our framework and some of the goals as we're still like kind of narrowing in on what makes the most sense. So I, I think the biggest thing, of, of course, is like to keep things decentralized and have a large number of parties that have stake in what we're doing and what the protocol is doing to um, sort of take, you know, we have like O of One Labs right now incubating the protocol, but it needs to be a much larger set of participants down the line. And really thinking through our distribution to end up in a state where there's a large number of people all working together to make this, make this happen. And then the other part of it is trying to give Coda to like the parties that will, you know, find the most use in it and be able to get the most out of it. And what that means is, is like uh, there's people like developers and there's people like early adopters that are like super essential to um, iterating on and improving what we're building and involving them in the distribution is also going to be like, I think, really important. Mm -hmm. When you do launch, uh, let's say there's an army of uh, developers and a lot of interest in the protocol. Uh, what do you hope that people will build on top of Coda? Yeah. Um, so there, there's a whole bunch of things. There's like the whole cryptocurrency related infrastructure. Like you have things like prediction markets and stable coins and identity systems and all this whole infrastructure. You need to build more cryptocurrency applications. And, and then you have, on the other hand, like... Um, sort of like uh, things like toys and games and and other sort of like coordination systems like prediction markets sort of fall into that where like it's an opportunity for people to engage with technology in a novel way. And then you have another category of things, which is kind of like decentralized applications where you can interact with the computer in a way that you didn't know was possible before, where you can sort of trust and understand what the computer is doing. And I think that probably the way we'll structure this is you know, really thinking through and um, being thoughtful about promoting a large set of these applications that we think are going to be valuable both for the ecosystem and for whoever builds them, and then trying to act as a support system to help these people realize those applications. Mm -hmm. So there are, uh, you know, a lot of different cryptocurrencies and smart contracts platforms coming to market. You know, they're all kind of competing for developer mindshare, you know, what will Coda's Edge be in attracting people? You know, what what is it that is is going to be special about Coda in the eyes of all these potential developers when they, you know, obviously they're looking at the definities and EOSs of the world. Yeah, there's there's kind of two things I think that we're doing, which is both making cryptocurrency as easy to develop for as possible, and also 
at the same time making it so the applications you develop kind of take maximal advantage of cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. Like you have right now sort of like either like a client server architecture or like a client extension architecture where there's a lot of different moving parts when you're developing an application. And my dream would just be like hit a job, like, you know, download a JavaScript library, pull that into like your application and really just build the application you care about leveraging a large set of APIs and a standard library that makes a large set of functionality possible. And if possible, even abstracting away, like all the details you have to think about right now around accounts and custody and everything, and just kind of keeping it as decentralized and simple as possible for the developer. And I think that's something that like makes me excited as a for someone who, uh, you know, who's uh, developed things in the past to, uh, to build on top of. And I think, I, I hope that it's something that will give leverage to other people as well. Hmm. Yeah. I was going to talk about Mimblewimble probably next. What else do you got, Louis? I want to talk about um, sort of ZK stocks and snarks generally. Yeah. Uh, it's it's seen as maybe by some as a bit of a sort of voodoo technology, but people are always touting, you know, all of these really interesting kind of, you know, new use cases outside of basic, you know, privacy or in this case, scalability. Um, you know, what are the the interesting kind of use cases for that technology that get you excited? Yeah, I think it's like sort of incredible that like it's possible to like, you know, share an entire computer program while hiding whatever you want about it and also kind of taking the burden off the user of running it. And what I'm very excited for is is I'm I'm hoping anyway that there will sort of this will unlock new possibilities for computing in general. Like right now we live in a world where we interact with computers all day and these computers are owned by, you know, huge numbers of different parties and entities. And when we interact with them, we're trusting them. We're trusting them based on the institutions behind them. We're trusting them based on the user interface design. We're trusting them based on what they say that they're doing. But there's no way to really verify what they are doing. And I think there's been some recent examples of why that might not be the best place for us to be in a society that's becoming more and more dependent and is using computers more and more. And I'm excited for ZK Snarks as a possibility for sort of giving power and agency back to users and giving them the power to control how they interact with the systems they're interacting with and what they share and don't share with those systems. Interesting. So is there like a uh, practical example that can sort of break it down for the novice? Yeah. Um, let, let's see. Like, like, let's say, for example, that you want to get renter's insurance or something. You want to get insurance for something in your life and you want to know how they calculated um, that rate for you. You want to make sure they didn't include anything they weren't supposed to or kind of, you know, fudging the rules or whatever. I always wonder whether Uber is doing like some sort of price discrimination thing on different people, like things like that. And being able to actually check that as the user, I think would be really valuable because if I could use a service that I really trusted was treating me with the respect I I want, it would think be a game changer in how I interact with computers and what I am willing to share or not share to improve my experience. Interesting. So you've been looking for an apartment recently? Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, and I had to get renter's insurance. So <laughs> yeah. Mimblewimble and uh, Grin has recently launched. Uh, from what I know about uh, Grin, I actually don't know too much. Uh, Grin nodes, Mimblewimble nodes only need to store the current state of the UTXO set rather than the entire blockchain history of transactions. It seems like 
this could be some sort of alternative solution to um, scaling blockchains and blockchain bloat. How are you thinking about competition from new cryptocurrencies like uh, Grin? I think it's fascinating, first of all, like I looking at like the cryptography they've leveraged to make this possible. It's like, it's, it's again, like I think similar to zero knowledge proofs kind of mind blowing that you, you can do it. <laughs> I, I think that there's also like, you know, it's a different kind of, there's, there's many different points in design space. And with, with Grin, you do get like a far reduced state space, but it's, it's still linear in terms of the number of transactions and you still have to be online to stay up to date with what's happening versus something constant size like Coda where, you know, it's like, the size of a few tweets and you're done. So there's definitely some differences and advantages to Coda. I think the privacy aspects of Grin are fascinating as well. And I'm also like, um, I, I'm really fascinated by their um, supply dynamics and, and how that's going to affect the cryptocurrency long-term. I'm, I'm like, you know, eagerly watching to see how that plays out because uh, I think it's it's a really great experiment in the in the cryptocurrency design space. Coda has been around for a few months now, but even uh, during, uh, maybe coming up on a year, but even during that short period of time, the market that it's been acting in has been shifting quite dramatically. How has uh, Coda been adapting uh, their strategy to fit the new market? How are you thinking differently about bringing the Coda protocol to market? I mean, the biggest thing is like, as cryptocurrencies ecosystem has evolved, it's forced us to like, think deep and hard about what we are doing as a project. And it's not as much as we've like ever changed what we're thinking about as much as like it's made us realize like kind of where like the biggest potentials are in this space and what the biggest problems are and where our technology is like best suited. Like I, I think that when we first started this project, we were really excited about building a cryptocurrency that could stay decentralized and wouldn't have to worry about like a block war between, you know, one or two megabytes or whatever. But that's kind of translated into us realizing that we want to build something that can take advantage of that to big cryptocurrency to like an even global audience. And it's been fascinating to kind of watch the space kind of move and evolve from like where it was in like early 2017 when we started really digging into this to where it is now, where you have so many different projects trying so many amazing things. This is your first company, I believe. Uh, what are some important lessons that you've learned uh, over the last year? Oh, to for, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm just trying to kind of gather all. Yeah, the, there's got to be a lot going on, right? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I think it's been like it's been an amazing experience, and I, I think the biggest thing I've learned is how to set up processes and structures to kind of rely more on the team and and to. So sort of almost like take a step back and and uh, tr try to set up a system where everything kind of unfolds smoothly. Like w when we started the project, it was just me and Isaac in one of our living rooms programming all day. A and then, you know, for like uh, most of the end of 2017, 2018, it was me kind of wrapping my head around the, the business and like the strategy and, and the like logistics side of things. A and now I'm trying to learn how to like really build a team that's like super collaborative and um, more of like a flat like structure to have the kind of culture we want to participate in. And I think like it's just like a really fascinating thing to kind of watch a company unfold and, and to see what works and what doesn't and think about what culture we want to build and, and think about what we want to do with this company and this technology. Yeah, absolutely. And I believe you're part of the Polychain family. They have all sorts of initiatives to help, you know, young entrepreneurs like yourself. They have this whole program called 
think 2030. Can you give us any sort of insight about how helpful your VCs have been in you know helping you navigate this? Yeah, I mean, I think this was a decision we had to make early on in the project when we Isaac and I realized we wanted to you know do this for real, and it was going to be more than us just. Uh, you know, sitting in our living rooms and uh, writing code and then posting it on a forum. Like we realized we wanted to set up like more structure and have more people involved in what we're doing. And that meant building a, a you know, a, a bigger operational effort around this. And it's it's been actually a great experience so far. I think that working with VCs and investors has, has like, they've like, you know, they've seen so many projects and they've seen what works and what doesn't. And they know what advice to give when and when to take a step back and they know when to reach out and say, hey, what can I do for you? Um, like, I, I think it's been essential in us being able to set up the company we have and for us to feel confident in being able to um, execute going forward. Mm-hmm. This is kind of a tough question. What keeps you up at night in in regards to Coda and, and the protocol? Oh, gosh, that's a, that's a great one. Uh, let's, let's see. I, I think the biggest thing is trying to these days anyway trying to better understand the people that will be one day using this cryptocurrency and have a stake in its use and it going forward i think that there's so many things in cryptocurrency which are just sort of like best practice but like people haven't really you know like thought them through and thinking through the impact of that like 5 years into a cryptocurrency is is i think I'm just always thinking through, well, if we do this, that solves it today. But what happens, like, for example, like thinking through like uh, inflation, like in having um, in, in like Bitcoin or Ethereum, like is fees enough to keep things going? Like, I don't know, but it's something that in the context of Coda, I spend a lot of time thinking about because I think it's going to be essential to the people actually that end up being involved in pushing this thing forward down the line. And we should make the right decisions now to at least as much as we can to to try to make this as successful as we can. Yeah, I think in traditional, you know, just traditional companies that go to market, you try to get to market as quickly as possible so you can gather feedback and iterate on your product. But when you're building a protocol like this, you just launch and that's it. There's 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 not as much you can do about ed- making any edits, you know, yeah. once you launch a smart contract. So So like just to share a little bit how we think about that, like we, we kind of think about it like like uh like Right now, we're incubating Coda. Coda's like a, a baby or like a toddler, and we're like trying to um, get it to a point where it can be independent, and we can give it to the community to run. And it's, I think, really important that we get that structure down right so that the community can make the right decisions down the line. Because, like you're saying, like you know, at some point, it's not up to us whether we make edits anymore. It's up to the community. And making everything in place so that if edits are needed, they can do it the right way is is uh, a super important part of setting this all up. Great. Any hires that you are trying to make that you'd like to advertise on the show? Uh, let's see. Um, yeah, there's there's a few. Um, yeah, yeah, there's always a few. We're we're always looking for uh, you know people interested in like cryptocurrency, functional programming, OCaml, like uh, and thinking through like protocol design um, to join our engineering team. There's a couple other roles we're sort of looking for right now. One is um, someone who would be excited about and interested in um, really being like kind of a developer-facing role in the team. Uh, we've been handling that alternatively and uh, or currently having a great time, but it's almost time for us to have someone dedicated to be out there, uh, you know, sort of talking to developers, iterating on our API, putting out documentation, 
and sharing with like the world some of the things we've built because I think they're really awesome and would be exciting to uh, kind of start getting out there. And the other one is is um, sort of just like people that are interested in like engineering management and being involved when we start spinning up teams and being involved in being like sort of a, an empathetic communicator and a support system for um, engineering teams as we spin up sort of more product areas. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us today, Evan. Uh, where can people get in touch with you or read about the work that Code is doing? Uh, there's a few places. There's um, two big ones I would suggest, which is following us on our Twitter. That's where you can see updates and ways to get involved and really anything about the project that is new or exciting. So check out our Twitter, Coda Protocol. And the other is checking out our Discord. We do all of our development in the open and you can just you know, see all of our day-to-day communication, both about... Uh, you know, different decisions we're making with the protocol as well as like, you know, I someone's saying I posted a PR, anyone want to take a look? And we also welcome collaboration. Um, and you can find links to our Discord channel and our website and on our Twitter. Well, thanks again. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about Coda, check out the show notes included in your podcast. And remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes. If you have any questions or comments, reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or the Wire blog, whatever works for you. If you like this episode, share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks again for listening.